Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. In this episode, I am joined by Yossi Klein-Halevi, a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. Halevi's book, Like Dreamers, won the Jewish Book Council's Everett Book of the Year Award, and his latest book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, is a New York Times bestseller. Enjoy my conversation with Yossi Klein-Halevi. Yossi, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate that. Uh, first, why don't, Good to why, be with why, why don't we start by, uh, by you telling us more about yourself, you know, where you're from, where you grew up, your, your early years, so to speak. Well, I come from the heart of the Jewish ghetto, a neighborhood in Brooklyn called Borough Park, uh, which is now the probably the largest ultra-Orthodox neighborhood in America. When I was growing up, it was becoming ultra-Orthodox. Uh, it was divided between the Haredi or ultra-Orthodox community and the modern Orthodox community, which is where my family belonged. And what was notable about Borough Park in the years uh, that I was uh, growing up there, and we're talking about the 1960s and 70s, is that uh, it was the probably the largest concentration of Holocaust survivor families in America. And my father was a survivor from, from Hungary. And we moved there because that's where his friends were. And so uh, I grew up in, in, um, in a neighborhood that had a very deep consciousness of us versus them. And the them was certainly the whole non-Jewish world, but it was also the, the rest of American Jewry. Uh, the rest of American Jewry that was really on its way to, to fully entering the American mainstream was completely alien to us. And we were really living in, in, in a, um, I, I would call it a, a, an extended um, uh, convalescence. Uh, it was this, this um, it was a, a kind of a displaced persons camp in Brooklyn. <laughs> and uh, it looked like a normal neighborhood, you know, little brick Brooklyn houses, red brick houses and, and uh, trees and but it was a displaced persons camp and all of my friends or almost all of them were children of survivors and growing up in that environment was actually very healing not only for our parents but also for us because we didn't feel alone it was normative to be a child of survivors and what i remember from growing up was laughing all the time with my friends. Tremendous expressions of black humor. We, we laughed about the Holocaust. It was, it was just part of, of the conversation, you know? And, and it was also the 60s. So we were growing up a little bit at a, at a remove. You know, the 60s were happening elsewhere in America, but we were getting rumors of the 60s. And so this very strange combination of, of this intense 
Holocaust experience, along with this enticing 60s, which we got mostly through the music. My friends and I were very connected to what was happening in San Francisco and, and musically. Uh, Dylan, of course, you know, listening to Dylan since 1965, you know, in elementary school. And so we, we the 60s gave us a language um, that somehow made sense along with the Holocaust uh, experience of, of our families, because it was this sense of everything is upside down. Everything is changing. All the norms are, 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 are up for grabs. And it all somehow made sense. And so I, I look back on, on my, my upbringing and, and, and what was happening in America at the time and realize just what an extraordinary moment it was to be growing up. At the time, of course, it was just the only reality that, that I knew, but I, I, um, I was imprinted um, from, from day one of my life uh, with the realization that we live in the most extraordinary times in, in human history. And so how does Yossi Klein Halevi get to Israel? What's that story? Well, the first time that I, speaking of living in extraordinary times, uh, my first visit to Israel was the summer of 1967. Um, a couple of weeks after the end of the Six Day War, um, my, I, I had just turned 14. And my father had two brothers who had survived the war and were living in Israel. And he hadn't seen them. Since, since the end of the war. And in those years, it was very unusual to just get on a plane and go anywhere, uh, even, even within, within the US, uh, let alone to fly somewhere in the Middle East. But as soon as the Six Day War was over, my father said, that's it, we're, we're going. And as it turned out, hundreds of thousands of diaspora Jews had the same impulse because travel to Israel as we know it today from the diaspora actually begins mass travel, mass pilgrimage begins in the summer of 67. Uh, there was this, this tremendous need of Jews around the world to be there, to, to, to experience Israel at that moment. And so I encounter Israel at, at the peak moment of the Israeli story, the moment of euphoria, of uh, first of all, the realization that we've just survived an attempt to destroy us. And not only survive, but we turned, we turned an attempt to destroy us into the, the most exalted moment uh, in 2000 years of, 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 uh, of Jewish history, since, since, since the last time we were in this land. We, we, we hadn't had that kind of an uplifting experience uh, I would say even more in some ways than the creation of the state itself, which didn't have the same impact, certainly not on American Jewry, as the Six-Day War did, uh, or on Soviet Jewry. The Six-Day War changed the Jews of the Soviet Union. Uh, it, it created this sense of Jewish pride, which resulted in a revolt by young Jews against the Soviet government's policy of forced assimilation. The Jewish world as we know it today was born in the, in the summer of 67.
And so I, of course, fell in love with Israel. It, it, it was not hard to fall, in Israel, to fall in love with Israel at that particular moment. <laughs> and uh, I always knew that I was coming back to Israel. In fact, I told my father um, at, the, at the end of uh, the summer, I said, you go back to Brooklyn. I'm staying here for high school. I'll figure it out. I'll work it out. It'll all just be great. And you can imagine how that, that uh, panned out. And, um, but I knew even when I was forcibly kind of dragged back to Brooklyn, uh, I knew that I was coming back to Israel. That's amazing. So like, what are your earliest memories of Israel? Like, how would you compare the Israel of 1967 to the Israel that we live in today? So let me, let me make another comparison for you. Uh, the Israel of, of, 19, of summer 67 with the Israel that I moved to, which was in the summer of 1982. Summer of 1982 was one of the worst moments in Israel's history. It was the beginning of the first Lebanon war. Uh, the, I moved in August 82 and the war had begun in June almost exactly to the date of the anniversary of, um, of the Six-Day War. But the Lebanon War and Israel of summer, summer 82 was the antithesis of uh, Israel in the summer of 67. Summer of 67, Israel is united. And every relative that I went to gave me some memento of the Six-Day War. A, book, a, a photo album or a record of the songs of the Six Day War. And they all said the same thing. Take this back to America and show the American Jews what, what we did. And there was this unbelievable sense of pride. And Israel was in 67, I mean, you know, we were 20, barely 25 years after the Holocaust. It's, it's, it's inconceivable to think now of the intimacy with which my generation grew up with the Holocaust. It was almost contemporary. And so Israel of summer 67, of course, is full of survivors. And it's, and it's filled as well with more recent immigrants from the Arab world. And you really felt you know, the, the, the newness of the, the Jews from, from Arab countries. Uh, you know, they, they, so the older people were wearing robes. Um, I remember, you know, the, the, the Jews from Iraq wore berets and had these little kind of Hitler mustaches, which for some reason was in style in Iraq. And, you know, and Israel just was so strange. And I loved it. I loved the strangeness of Israel because I found American Judaism really stifling. I found the American Jewish community outside of Borough Park, you know, uh, to be so boring. And, and, and you come to Israel and you say, wow, you know, this is really, this is, this is so strange. You know, I didn't know anything about Jews from Morocco or Yemen. And, and there they are. And so I fell in love with all of the diversity. And Israel was celebrating its diversity in the summer of 67. Summer of 82, the diversity is falling apart. Israelis were seriously talking about a civil war 
between Jews from Europe, Ashkenazim, and Jews from, from, from the Middle East, Mizrahi. There was real talk of an actual literal civil war, which of course never happened. And let the left-right divide really emerges in all of its uh, intensity, its pathology uh, in the summer of 67 and summer of 82. Uh, Israel is at war and war is always what united us. And now war is dividing us. And so I land in an Israel that's tearing itself apart, that's totally dysfunctional. There's virtually no immigration to the country. Uh, my wife and I show up at the airport uh, and we, we wait for hours before anyone from the Jewish agency shows up to, to process us because they're just, nobody was coming. And, um, and inflation was literally 300%. It would go up to 500% before, before the, the, the government finally uh, got a handle on it. And so if you would have asked me in the summer of 82, does this country have a viable future? My answer was, I really don't know. But I joined Israel at that low moment because I just always wanted to be here. And, it, and it, I had hoped to, be, to come earlier. I was almost 30 by the time I moved here. But I, I, I came the summer of 82, just circumstances worked out that way. But it was actually a very good time to be an immigrant here. Because if you could survive the summer of 82 uh, and keep your love for the country and your faith in the country's future in reasonably intact, then you were really ready for anything. And, and it was a great training ground because as soon as you landed in Israel in, at that time, all of the romantic categories of Zionism that I'd grown up with were so obviously obsolete, <laughs> and uh, and so it, you know it was. It, I had to be real. I had to face reality, and um, and so you know this is this is my fortieth year, by the way, Josh. You know, it's amazing. Twenty twenty two. I'm Sarah and I are celebrating forty years here. And really celebrating, I feel this tremendous sense of, of joy and privilege to have been part of the Israeli story for 40 years. You know, I, not only have I lived here far longer than I lived in America, but I've also been part of the Israeli story for a majority of its, of its or a plurality of its history. You know, Israel is now 70, what, 73 or something. Right. And, uh, and you know, and I remember when I came here, when I moved here, I, I felt maybe the story is over, you know, and yet here I am 40 years later, having so, lived through so much of Israeli history. So speaking yeah. of stories, you've written uh, quite a few books, four books from, from my account. The first one, I believe, was about 20 years ago in 2002. That's at my the entrance, account, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the first one was uh, at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, a Jew search for God with Christians and Muslims in the Holy Land. But I want to ask you about your most recent book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, which is a New York Times bestseller. 
that's a loaded title. Uh, I see here also that uh, the epilogue includes uh, extensive responses from Palestinians. So what, what was the you know, premise for this book? Why did you want to write it? And, and how has it been received? So the, the book was born in, through insomnia, actually. Uh, I live in a neighborhood called French Hill in Northeast Jerusalem. It's the last neighborhood before the beginning of the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, the territories, call it whatever you want. And I live in the last, literally the last row of houses of French Hill. So I'm looking out uh, onto a Palestinian village, two villages on the next hill. The security barrier, the wall is literally outside my porch. I'm just looking at it now. And the intimacy of this geography, the, this, this landscape tells such a complicated story. And, and late at night, I can't sleep. And it's two in the morning and I hear the muezzin, the call to prayer from the next hill. And it's reverberating almost as if it's happening in my, in my living room. And then 4.30 in the morning, you know, there's the muezzin again. I'm looking out at the lights on the next hill. And I started having this conversation in my head with an anonymous neighbor, a Palestinian neighbor. Everything that I wish I could explain, everything that I wish I could explain about who we are as a people, why we're here, how I experience this conflict, why we're such troubled neighbors, why we're neighbors at all. And, and this was going on for a while. And one night I just started to write Dear Neighbor. And, and I, I was writing longhand. I never write, you know, I don't write longhand. Nobody writes longhand anymore. But it was something archaic. You know, there was something about the form of writing a letter to someone. And I don't know why it took that form, but it just, that's how what I needed to say was somehow being expressed. And so the book was really an attempt to do two things. One was to explain our story to people who don't know our story, who get a very distorted idea of our story from their media and schools and mosques. And the second purpose was to invite Palestinians to respond and tell me their narrative, their counter narrative, and let's start a conversation on our drastically different narratives, our mutually irreconcilable narratives. And the book was translated into Arabic and, and appeared in Arabic the same day that it came out in English. And what I, I put it on the, web, on, on, on the web for free downloading in Arabic and thousands of people downloaded and hundreds responded. And so the epilogue that you cited, which is in the paperback edition, uh, is 50 pages of Palestinian responses. The book has really been, been received in, a, in 
in a way that was so far beyond my expectations. And in fact, I had no expectations. I had no idea if, if certainly if any Palestinians would read it, let alone respond. Uh, and uh, the book took two years to find the publisher. Every publisher in New York turned it down. And finally, it was published by HarperCollins because they forgot that they turned it down two years earlier. <laughs> so uh, the book has been, uh, the book has appeared in, uh, in 12 languages. I, none of my books have been anywhere near as successful. And it has generated real conversation uh, in the Arab world. Um, can, can Saudi, Arabia's, into... uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, largest news weekly devoted two pages to the book. And so there's, there's really been a conversation about this. What, what have been some of the more surprising conversations or responses that you've received from the Palestinian and or greater Arab world? Well, first of all, as really, given the fact that I had no expectations at all, any responses were surprising to me. The responses that weren't surprising were the, hot, were, were the expressions of hostility. Uh, that's something that I fully expected, and I wasn't disappointed. There were lots of lots of emails, Facebook posts, um, expressing outrage, hatred, um, threats. But the the real surprise were the many very thoughtful letters that I received, long letters that. Uh, um, argued argued with the Zionist narrative, which was fine. I, I had invited that response. And um, letters expressing either gratitude that an Israeli had bothered reaching out and trying to explain our story, um, or anger. You know, it was a real range of, of responses. And um, it's been it's been an incredible adventure. I've I've uh, I've made friends through this book. Uh, the book was written, as I said earlier, to an anonymous Palestinian. That would no longer be necessary for me, and that's really what I was hoping would happen through through this book. Uh, the last thing that I'll say, Josh, is that uh, the book has been. Um, um, very well received among young American Jews, uh, which is the second audience I was hoping to reach. And the book in some sense is, is, um, is, an, is, is an argument about the complexity of Jewish identity. What is the connection between religion, peoplehood, land, national sovereignty, ethnicity, all of these complicated pieces of our identity uh, which um, growing numbers of young diaspora Jews and probably young Israelis as well uh, don't have a very clear idea about how these pieces fit. And so in trying to explain the complexity of Jewish identity to my Palestinian audience, I, I was also hoping that it would be useful for young American Jews. And, and I see from the responses there that it really has hit, hit a nerve. 
speaking of, you know, sort of the young generations and future generations of Jews, not just in the U.S., but also in Israel and around the world, what would you like to see happen in the Jewish world moving forward, let's say, in the next 10 years? Are we speaking now about American Jewry, about, uh, about Israel? Well, I think, you know, it's a good question because one of the things that I find uh, to be an issue in the Jewish world is that we divide ourselves. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish with the so-called future of Jewish is really to try to unite us and bring us together and treat us as one people because we are one people. So I would respond to your question by saying, how do we look at this from a holistic global view and not try to break it up by demographic or geographic or other types of uh, denomination, so to speak. So first of all, my answer to you then would be that uh, my vision for the next two, 10 years or my hope for the next 10 years is that uh, your vision uh, is, is what's fulfilled and that we figure out a way <clears throat> where American Jews and Israelis could celebrate each other's uh, Jewish vitality and the extraordinary gift of living at a time where we have on the one hand the most powerful and and creative expression of Jewish sovereignty that I believe we have ever had in 4,000 years of our history and on the other hand the most powerful and and secure despite everything still secure uh, diaspora community that we've ever had in Jewish history as well and so this, I, I believe that this is the most interesting moment to be living as a Jew ever. That's a very big statement, but I don't think we've ever had two communities that have been so substantial emerging simultaneously and happening right after the Holocaust. I mean, this is the unbelievable uh, twist in the modern Jewish story is that we went from the lowest point in our history, which was 1945, to what I believe is the peak moment of Jewish history, which is today. And I think about the two flags uh, on the bima of American synagogues, you know, the, the, the American flag and the Israeli flag. And when I was growing up, I used to kind of take that for granted. And I didn't think there was anything particularly interesting uh, in having these two flags there. And today I realize that these were the two flags that symbolized the two Jewish centers that allowed us as a people to not only survive the Holocaust, but in a sense to reverse it, to turn, to turn the abyss into a kind of a redemptive moment in Jewish history. And what I would want to see happen in, in the next 10 years is the capacity to uh, to celebrate that, you know, it's an interesting point. You you mentioned the term Jewish vitality, and I'm curious to know. Um, it seems to me that that that's waning. It's waning in Israel. It's waning in you know the second biggest Jewish population, which is the United States, and it's waning in other Jewish communities around the world. And I'm wondering, do you see that? Uh, and if so, how do we? Uh, move forward with restoring and revitalizing our our Jewish. So, so, he, so here I think we really need to distinguish between Israel and diaspora, and between American Jewry and the rest of diaspora. 
I, I see growing Jewish creativity in Israel. Uh, it's, for me, it's expressed most um, experientially in Israeli music. Uh, it, I think Israeli music is, is the most fantastic art form that Zionism has created. Uh, it's certainly the most beloved art form among Israelis. We, we love our music and for good reason. The history of Israel has a soundtrack and that soundtrack is so, um, is so rich and so nuanced. And in the last 10 years or so, it's taken a totally new turn. Israeli music used to be the expression of the secular Zionist ethos. Today, it's the expression of the spiritual search of Israelis. It's more and more about God and about the, 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 the longing for, for spiritual experience and drawing on, on diaspora music of the last, uh, of, of the last uh, centuries and, and, and updating it. And, and, and this, this meeting point between, for example, Piyut, the prayer poems of Jews from Arab countries with Israeli rock is one of the richest cultural uh, developments uh, in world jewelry. And it pains me that diaspora Jews know so little about what's happening here, because this is their music too. It's not only our music. And um, so what I see happening here is a deep spiritual search. I think that's only going to grow. Uh, I see us just beginning to create new forms of Israeli Judaism that are not going to be um, the, the, the Judaism that we imported from the ghetto. You know, the, the, one of the, the, the great failures of Israel uh, is that we, we, Zionism freed the Jewish people, but it didn't free Judaism. And so uh, that's, that's, that's the next stage of, uh, of the Zionist cultural revolution uh, is, is Judaism. So uh, in terms of America, I think that, that the picture there is very complicated because on the one hand, there is a, um, a renewal. There is a spiritual renewal happening in the liberal denominations. Uh, it isn't yet widespread enough. Uh, it hasn't yet um, deepened uh, enough, but there really is a, a, um, a core of a new generation of, uh, of Jews in the reform movement, rabbis, young rabbis, lay leaders in, in the liberal denominations who are creating a richer Americanized Judaism. And I, I love what I see. I, 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 I love the fact that when you go to a reform or conservative synagogue, um, it's no longer unusual for the president of the synagogue to be a convert to Judaism. Uh, rabbis are converts. And so the liberal movements have, have done two tremendous things, or three, I would say three major transformations. The first is bringing women to the forefront and, and, and the liberal denominations have really, in, in a way, compensated for 
uh, 4,000 years of, uh, of a public, largely public absence of women. And that's happening in American Jewry. And, and, and that's, that's something that we shouldn't take for granted because it's an extraordinary transformation. And the, whatever vitality I see happening in liberal Judaism, much of it, maybe even most of it, is coming through, through women. The second transformation is what I mentioned before in terms of converts. We have not had such an infusion of converts since the, the late uh, Second Temple period. And maybe, maybe uh, this has even surpassed it. My wife is a convert. Uh, I, I feel that, that my own Jewishness has been so enriched by the privilege of having grown up in America and having, having met and fallen in love with a, a, uh, a woman who came from a pilgrim family, you know, a Mayflower family. And uh, only in America, really, only in America. And so uh, when, when, we, when we think about the vitality of American Judaism, it's women, it's converts, it's the LGBTQ breakthrough of, of giving dignity to, to gay Jews, giving them a, a, a public space within Judaism. These are, these are transformations that, that have laid a, a tremendous um, ground for, for renewal. My big worry about American Jewry is not assimilation and it's not intermarriage. I've benefited from intermarriage. Oh, it's true my wife converted, but nevertheless, from the intimacy between Jews and non-Jews, that doesn't worry me. If we have a strong Judaism, we will, we will hold our ground in America. What worries me is the growing trend, Dafka, especially in these circles of young rabbis in the liberal denominations, the core of Jewish renewal in America to cut themselves off from Israel. And this, to my mind, is not a political catastrophe for Israel. I'm not worried about that. We will we'll manage. It's a spiritual catastrophe for American Jewry. If you cut yourself off from the other great center of spiritual vitality, and forgive me for, for, for my Zionist conceit, but I would say for the preeminent center of Jewish vitality, which is the state of Israel, then American Jewry is going to be lost in America. It will not have the vitality on its own without a, an organic link with the state of Israel, with Israeli society. Yossi, thank you for so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Shabbat shalom. Well, Josh, really, really appreciate it. And thank you for everything you're doing. <laughs>